I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the hottest report coming out of a think tank in town this week, we have with us Mark Kansian of our international security program, who's a senior advisor at CSIS. Mark, your report, Wargaming, a Chinese Invasion of Taiwan, has really taken Washington and, and certain parts of the world by storm. Can you give us an overview of the report that you released this week? Sure. Let me say first that uh, I think the report has received a lot of attention because it's one of the few such analyses that's available in the public. You know, the DOD has done a lot of classified wargaming, but that's all behind closed doors. Very little detail gets out. This is entirely in the public domain. We also ran it 24 times to provide a, a strong analytic foundation. And we spent a lot of time looking at history and test results to come up with tables and computer programs for combat results so that the adjudication would be the same across the board. We've been running this project for 15 months, developed this war game, and then ran 24 iterations of the war game. The war game examines a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. We don't argue that this is the most probable course of action, and we certainly don't argue that it is likely, but we do argue that it is possible given Chinese rhetoric and their increasingly aggressive stance towards Taiwan. Uh, and also it's the most dangerous uh, Chinese course of action. So we argue that it's important to do analysis of this uh, course of action. What we found was that the United States Taiwan and Japan can ensure that Taiwan continues as an autonomous and democratic entity. However, that comes at a very high price. The United States and its coalition lose dozens of ships, hundreds of aircraft, and thousands of personnel. The Taiwanese economy is devastated, and the Chinese suffer heavily also. They lose hundreds of ships, hundreds of aircraft, and thousands of, of personnel. It is devastating for all concerned. So we make a variety of recommendations at the end to enhance deterrence, and if deterrence fails, to bring the conflict to a conclusion more rapidly. Let's back up for a second. Can you give us context about how a war game actually works? Uh, yes, this is a physical war game. There are two maps. One is a five-foot by six-foot map of the Western Pacific. That's where we play the operational aspects of the game the air and naval conflict. There's a smaller map of Taiwan where we play the ground game. The game has about 2,500 counters that represent air, naval, ground forces, uh, missile forces. And it has two sides, a Chinese side and a US, Japan, uh, Taiwanese side. We had participants from the spectrum of the national security community, a lot of senior uh, military officers, retired, and senior governmental officials, uh, but also members of uh, think tanks and academic institutions are around town. Mark, can you explain why doing a war game outside of a classified environment is an important exercise? That's what we did. None of this involved any classified information. It wasn't done in a skiff. It wasn't part of a government exercise. This is in the totally in the public domain. And I think that's partly why, you know, we're seeing a lot of attention for this report. It's the first of its kind. Explain why this is important to do. Well, it's important to do because this is such a, a visible 
public policy issue. Over the last number of years, of course, the Chinese have built a very powerful military and and their rhetoric has become increasingly aggressive. So uh, now what was once considered outside of the realm of possibility is now an everyday discussion. That is a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. We believed it was important to have a public discussion so that all elements of the national security community could participate and that we could lay out all of our assumptions, why we made the assumptions we did, what alternative assumptions uh, were out there, where we got our numbers and how we came to our conclusions so that the whole community could participate in a discussion of this important policy issue. So, you know, in your report, you mentioned, you know, at the onset of this discussion that the United States suffers heavy losses, Taiwan suffers heavy losses, China suffers heavy losses. What are some of the losses that your war game projected for the United States? The United States loses 10 to 20 surface combatants, including on almost all of the iterations to carriers. They are vulnerable to Chinese missiles. Chinese missiles are numerous and accurate. Two of our aircraft carriers we lose? Two of the aircraft carriers get sunk right off the bat. Wow. Yeah, the problem that the United States has is that our doctrine and our policy is to send forces forward in a crisis to enhance deterrence and strengthen war fighting if conflict occurs. The problem is a great deterrence can also be a great target. And what happens is as the United States pushes forces forward, bombers, aircraft carriers, aircraft, they get inside the Chinese missile range. And when the Chinese decide to attack, they're very vulnerable. We lose a couple of aircraft carriers, which is catastrophic. You know, the United States only has, what do we have, 15 aircraft carriers total? Uh, 12. We have 12. Okay. So we lose two of 12 in this exercise. That's catastrophic. What are some of the other losses that we would suffer? We lose 10 to 20 service combatants. And hundreds of aircraft, generally 200 to 400 U.S. aircraft, but sometimes as many as 500. Interestingly, most of these are lost on the ground to Chinese missile attacks. The problem is that the United States has to move these aircraft forward in order to strike at the Chinese fleet, particularly its amphibious forces. That puts them inside the Chinese missile range. So the Chinese missiles will regularly attack the airfields. The United States loses hundreds of aircraft on the ground, but nevertheless can continue to attack the Chinese fleet and over time attrite it so the Chinese cannot sustain their invasion of Taiwan. So it's no wonder that we're getting a lot of inquiries from Capitol Hill. Members of Congress and their staff want you to brief them on this exercise because, you know, there's a real heavy cost to the United States getting involved in a conflict like this. What are some of the costs to China, what are some of the costs to Taiwan in comparison to the United States? Well, let me say first for the United States, this level of casualties is unprecedented since the Second World War. The United States loses about half as many troops in three weeks as it did in 20 years of conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan. For the Air Force and the Navy, this is going to be particularly traumatic because they've operated in sanctuaries since the Second World War. They're going to uh, lose aircraft and ships at a rate that they haven't experienced in a long time. The example we use is on Okinawa, the U.S. air base there. Follow-on aircraft will land on a base where the runways are all potmarked with craters. They're going to taxi past hundreds of U.S. aircraft that have been destroyed on the ground and bulldozed uh, to the side of the runway. They're going to move into a barracks that was recently 
emptied because the previous squadron was destroyed on the ground and the hospitals will be filled with hundreds of casualties. And these follow-on forces are going to be told, welcome to Okinawa, tomorrow you fly against uh, the Chinese that did all this destruction. The U.S. Air Force and they have not lived in that kind of environment. It's a cultural change for them. The senior leadership understands that. When you listen to their, their comments, they recognize that a conflict against a peer competitor will be different from what we've experienced really for an entire generation, but that will take time to percolate down into the entire uh, institution. Looking at Taiwan and Japan and China, for Taiwan, the conflict will be devastating, although they sustain themselves as an autonomous entity. The economy is devastated because the Chinese, of course, are landing on uh, their island, is fighting on the island in many of their cities. Much of the infrastructure gets destroyed as the Chinese tried to pin down uh, Taiwanese forces. And the Taiwanese lose a lot of their air force and their navy right off the bat. They're very exposed. One of our recommendations is that they move over time towards anti-ship, anti-air systems on land that are less vulnerable because they're in a very different environment. The Chinese also lose a lot of forces. They lose hundreds of ships and hundreds of aircraft. Uh, and then if their invasion fails, as it usually does, there'll probably be thousands, maybe tens of thousands of POWs. It's a level of loss that might endanger the stability of the Chinese communist regime. The Japanese also get dragged into the war frequently in something like 19 of our 24 iterations that the Japanese get dragged in because of uh, the U.S. bases. That connection with Japan is absolutely vital for the United States. We have to use those bases because they're close to Taiwan. Our own bases in places like Guam and in Australia are just too far away to sustain the fight. So the United States needs that connection with Japan. The problem is that often Japan gets dragged in also. This is heavy duty all around. What are some of the losses that extend beyond the battlefield? What are some of the larger implications? There are two larger in implications. One is that the entire globe will feel the effects of this conflict because, of course, much of the computer chip industry is on Taiwan, and that would be entirely disrupted. Further, the Chinese economy exports to the rest of the world. Much of that would be disrupted. So the whole world will feel the effects of uh, this conflict, even if they are not directly uh, involved. Another effect that we worry about is that although the United States prevails, this might set off a sentiment for isolationism, as we saw after the First World War. The United States might withdraw from much of the world and leave that then exposed to other adversaries, Russia, Iran, or others. The other question I have along these lines is, what did your report show in terms of hurting the United States standing globally if we were to engage in such a, a conflict? Well, such a conflict would take the entire attention of the United States. We did run some excursions where the United States was diverted by other crises, Ukraine, for example, the Middle East, so couldn't flow quite as many uh, forces. But it's the casualties that would have a lasting effect. First, it would take many years to replace the ships and aircraft that are lost, but there's also the risk that the United States will become disillusioned with overseas commitments and pull back in a kind of isolationism that we saw in the 1920s. So, Mark, the war game results in the report concluded that the United States urgently needs to strengthen 
its deterrence. What steps should the United States take to make that happen? There are a variety of things that the United States uh, should do. For example, we need to build hardened shelters in places like Guam, but also in Japan. And the reason is that 90% of aircraft losses were on the ground because they were exposed to Chinese missile attacks. Building hardened shelters will protect them. It's not 100% protection, but it greatly complicates the Chinese attack problem. We need to increase the flow of equipment to Taiwan. The FMS process is slow and is probably blame on both sides. But one thing we found was that once the war began, you couldn't get anything onto Taiwan. In other words, the Chinese bubble over Taiwan was so tight, you couldn't get reinforcements onto the island or logistics. Uh, on several iterations, uh, the US player tried to do that. It was always a, a failure. They lost entire uh, battalions and squadrons of, of ships trying to get through this Chinese bubble. That means that the strategy we've used with Ukraine will not work. Once the war began, of course, with Ukraine, we've flowed weapons and munitions to Ukraine. The Russians have tried to interdict that flow, but they haven't been able to do that. That strategy won't work with uh, the Chinese in an attack on Taiwan. Another thing that pops out is uh, the need for larger inventories of munitions, particularly long-range anti-ship munitions. Those munitions coupled with bombers were very effective. The bombers could be based outside of the Chinese defensive zone. They could fly into it, launch long-range missiles against the Chinese fleet. Those were devastating. The problem was the U.S. inventory lasted three days. Three days. Wow. Typically one turn. The problem was that we have a lot of land attack munitions, very few anti-ship munitions. And our current plans don't change that. So one of our recommendations is we need to, we need to switch the balance towards these anti-ship munitions. Many of them, of course, would need to be launched from Air Force aircraft, although the Air Force has a long history of doing anti-ship operations. That's not what they're inclined to do, and they needed a push uh, to do more in that regard. So the weapon you're talking about is known as a long-range anti-ship missile, or LORASM is what we call them, right? There's about 450 that the United States currently possesses. You're saying those stockpiles are going to run out quickly in such an event we need to beef up. You know, at the same time, this morning I was listening to CNBC and, you know, the guys were talking about how, you know, defense stocks, defense company stocks and how because of the new makeup of the, the Congress and because of the war in Ukraine and because of stuff like what we're talking about here, defense stocks are pretty hard to game out, but they could be pretty hot. I don't I'm not asking you to speculate on the stock market or anything. But we are talking about a real crisis if the United States runs low on equipment and munitions, aren't we? Well, we are. And as we've highlighted, this shortage of LORASM, the long-range anti-ship missiles. And I'd note that we've estimated that in 2026, we might have 450. Today, we probably have about 200 because we included some that are going to be produced between now and 2026, which is when the game uh, is set. This problem about munition stockpiles is a general one. We're seeing problems with our uh, shipments to Ukraine, that many areas, many munitions are running low. CSIS has published a number of commentaries analyzing that flow. The one good thing here is that what we're sending to Ukraine, for the most part, does not affect our ability to fight a war in the Western Pacific. What we're sending to Ukraine focuses on ground combat, 
anti-tank weapons, for example, whereas the war in the Western Pacific would be mostly air and naval. So by supporting Ukraine, we are not undermining our ability to defend Taiwan, but we have a common problem in that our munitions inventories for all of this are, are very low. A key capability for the United States was submarines, whereas the service ships were quite vulnerable. Submarines wrecked havoc with the Chinese fleet, particularly the amphibious fleet uh, in the Taiwanese Straits. It's important to ensure that the United States keeps building attack submarines uh, and that they have the munitions that they need because they were so effective. We call it the happy time for U.S. submarines because they are uh, so effective against uh, Chinese shipping. And that's a, a reference to actually an experience in World War II. Back to your report and your war game, you listed four conditions for success that are necessary to defeat a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. What are these four conditions and how likely did your, your exercise show that they could be met? Well, we've talked about some of these conditions about long-range munitions. One critical condition is that the Taiwanese fight. All of this is predicated on the notion that they will resist and resist effectively. We think that that's a reasonable assumption, but it is not a given. And the Taiwanese are going to have to step up both with their own preparations and military and civilian. We note the importance of the connection with uh, Japan, as we talked about earlier. The U.S. bases in Japan are absolutely critical. We note the importance of Taiwan improving its ground forces. Historically, Taiwan is focused on air and naval forces because those were able to keep the Chinese at bay uh, for most of the 50, 70 years since uh, Taiwan was established. The problem now is that the Chinese air and naval capabilities are so strong that they will overwhelm uh, Taiwanese air and naval uh, capabilities. So the ground forces are going to be much more important. They need to be effective enough that they can contain uh, a Chinese bridgehead and buy time then for the US, Japan, and Taiwanese forces to attrite the Chinese amphibious fleet so that they cannot reinforce their bridgeheads and ultimately the Taiwanese are able to eliminate it. So Mark, where do we go from here? What do you predict the next couple months or years even to look like in terms of uh, Taiwan-China relations? Well, I certainly hope that our project has helped to put some issues on the table so that the public, the administration, and Congress can debate these. It would be wonderful if the Congress could hold some hearings on issues like munitions inventories, like hardened shelters, things that would really help both warfighting uh, and deterrence. It's important to, to recognize that it's probably also going to take some additional resources. This doesn't require across-the-board increases, but it does require some targeted increases to increase capabilities in the Western Pacific. Mark, thanks so much for helping us understand this really complicated issue and you know your really important war game that you did this week. It's on CSIS.org if anybody wants to see the report. There's video that goes along with it as well. Mark, thanks so much. Well, thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 